Welcome to the MS Dev Show, episode 40. This week, we talked to Stephen Morowski about his experience practicing DevOps at Stack Exchange and Chef. We also talk about the Windows 10 announcement. And did they just announce freaking holograms? Wake up, Carl. What? Get any sleep? <laughs> it's time to do the show. Oh, man. Already? <laughs> yeah. How come you're not getting any sleep, man? You can't sleep during the show. Yeah. Um, uh, we had our uh, fifth child our and our first girl this weekend or this uh, earlier this week. So that's congratulations. Yeah, thanks. It's been really exciting for us. Yeah, that was funny because I was I was actually sending you messages that morning and I don't know why it popped in my head, but I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I know she's getting close. I should see how she's doing. So I send you a message. I'm like, how's Renee doing? <laughs> and uh, there was no response. And then I, I, I was like, maybe I should check Facebook. And sure enough, baby. Yep. Suddenly a baby appeared. Okay. So this week we have a special guest. We have uh, Stephen Morosky. Did I get that right? Morosky. Yep. Stephen Morosky. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> Perfect. Community software development engineer for Chef. He's also a Microsoft MVP in PowerShell, and he's co-host of Ops All the Things podcast, which is pretty cool. Welcome, Stephen. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. I always yeah, I, I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, yeah, and we can tell. I uh, I met you at a local user group con- or a local user group, mm-hmm. and uh, it was really my first like real exposure to DevOps. I I had other people explain it to me. Um, you don't know, say, like, well, it's just this. And then they tried to explain it real quick. And I, I had no clue until I heard it from you. So you were, you were the person who taught me what DevOps is. And, uh, Carl saw you at, um, at that conference in Wisconsin Dells. Yeah. Yeah. I was actually, I was able to get to that conference, uh, two years, uh, and talked about, uh, some PowerShell topics and things there. Uh, and then, uh, talked about DevOps, uh, and some of the, some of the, uh, tools that we used at stack exchange, uh, when yep. I was pre- when I was, when I worked there. Perfect. So we knew we had to have you on. So it was just a matter of time. <laughs> Great. So let's jump into feedback. So we actually had a ton of feedback. It's funny. The last episode we had, we had no feedback. Everybody went dark and, uh, but now we've, we've just gotten a whole bunch of feedback on the, um, regarding the last episode. Yeah. I think we just need to challenge our uh, listeners a little bit more often. That helps. Yeah, yeah. Actually, so we had we had some really good feedback on the last episode in the comments on the the website, and um, so we had one that was that was just talking about. Um, oh man, uh, hopefully I can pronounce this right. Andreas Wonkvist. Wonk, I can uh, probably screw that up horribly. So he said that he always enjoyed uh, listening, and uh, you know he had a whole bunch of comments here, but he said that uh, he really enjoyed that we kept publishing even during the holidays and told us to keep up the great work. Um, so thank you. And then we have a comment here, and this one's just a short name, so I'm not sure what his name is. But he was talking about, uh, he was commenting on the episode. We were talking about using, you know, uh, like a Nest thermostat or, or something like that. And he was talking about uh, some of the the thermodynamic uh, properties. Um, and you really have to read this whole thing, because I, I had a short conversation with him, and we were just talking about how Nest worked and how it saved you money. Um, so I recommend checking that out. Um, and then we also had, I just, I got an IM uh, recently from Ryan Loudermilk from the Windows Developer Show. And he, he sent me a message saying that he listened, he had just listened to the stream analytics episode with Janet Yielding. And he said that he really enjoyed that. Um, so thank you, Ryan. Thank you for listening to the show and thank you for the message. And uh, I also checked out iTunes. Our ratings, the number of ratings that we have on there has been going up. So I'm happy to see that. That really helps us spread, uh, spread the news about the show. And, uh, 
Um, you know, there's no more like textual reviews out there, but if you want to use that as like a forum to, you know, propose to your wife or, or whatever, <laughs> feel free to do that. <laughs> and if you have anything positive to say about the show, uh, we're likely to read it. Uh, keep those iTunes reviews coming. We really appreciate it. Um, so you can, to, to send feedback, you can send us feedback at feedback at msdevshow.com. You can comment on our Facebook page, or like we said, you can leave a review on iTunes and your feedback really helps make the show better. So we want to hear it. So let's see what happened this week, Carl, anything interesting? Yeah. I, I heard there's a, a tiny windows announcement. Oh, just, I, I, I think I missed that. Was there anything interesting announced? Um, <laughs> maybe a couple things. Yeah. Well, I, I think the first thing is very important is, you know, they announced the availability for it. You know, it, it's, it's going to be free for people with windows seven and up. It's going to be on yep. windows phone eight, one and up. And, uh, and that's for the period of a year. So when it does finally come out, you know, you'll have a year to make that upgrade for free. Yeah, that that's actually huge. So you can get windows 10 for free, as long as you have windows seven or above, and I was actually just uh, talking to uh, my kid's school yesterday and I was telling them about that because they still they still have some XP machines and I'm, I'm trying to remove all those. But I was saying, hey, as long as you're on seven and up on all these machines, it's just it's going to be free. And they were that got them really excited. And they're, you know, just sort of average consumers. Right. So that was a pretty big deal. Yeah, I think the year the year time, the year thing, too, uh, is kind of important because you have a year for that free upgrade. And yeah, part of that to, is to like to, to activate it, to take advantage of it. Right. So, but to, to kind of encourage that migration to window, you know, to windows 10 to have that mm-hmm. kind of common servicing point. I think that's a, uh, I think that's a pretty uh, key part of that strategy though. Yeah. Yeah. Cause there's some features in there and what we'll talk about, for example, the browser, we'll talk about that in a bit, but uh, you know, I think it's important to get everybody on the, on the, the same OS there. And this really removed I can't think of many reasons not to do this. It's going to be faster in almost every case on, on pretty much any hardware that you're running on today. And it's got all the features that were in pretty much every version leading up to it. So yeah, it's just removing that barrier of entry. So that's exciting. Um, and then Cortana. So what did you think of this, Carl? Yeah, I'm pretty excited because I, I use Cortana on windows phone quite a bit. And, yeah. um, you know, there are times when it does make sense to talk to your, to your PC. And in those cases, you know, I, I think Cortana is, it makes a, a pretty good interface into it. Um, mm-hmm. They also mentioned that, you know, they're expanding Cortana's ability to do quote desktopy uh, kinds of tasks. So, you know, you, you can reference, you know, dates and times better. Like I, I think some of the examples they had were going back in like uh show me pictures from last month or, or stuff like that. Um, okay. I, I think some of those features, well, not very useful at this point for enterprise. I think for a lot of people, you know, is will make it easier to use. You know, I can imagine, you know, um, you know, my parents or my wife's parents, you know, being able to ask a question to the computer like that one, like, you know, they show me the grandkids pictures at Christmas time. Well, that's something that a computer can easily parse out but still gives a lot of value back. So I think for those kinds of tasks, it's pretty cool. Um, It'll be interesting in what other ways that they can do it and that uh, enhance productivity a little bit more for, for work and stuff like that. I think we've yet to see that uh, brought up. Yeah. I think that was, that's a good example, Carl, because 
there is there will be no quicker way to bring those photos up right and you don't necessarily even have to speak to it the quickest thing you can do is actually just go to cortana and you know type it in or say it but you're right you know we we all three of us uh work from home and uh you know i it would actually be okay if i had to talk to my computer every once in a while that might actually be a a decent way to interact with it but still being able to, to type in some of these queries is really cool and i think what what microsoft has demonstrated is the sort of the commitment to Cortana and you know, when it first came out, it that's hilarious. You guys can't see the, I, since I said it, it, it woke up. <laughs> it, it thought I said, you know, Hey, Hey Cortana. There we go. It didn't pick that up. Um, and it only recognizes my voice, but anyway, um, I, I think what we've seen is, you know, it, it came out with a fair amount of features, but what I've seen over time is the features just keep getting added into here. And I think we're going to see that on the, on the desktop as well. So we're, we're probably going to have a, a good set of features out, out of the gate, but over time, I, I can only imagine what this is going to end up doing. That's going to be, that's, that's really exciting to me. And then also integration with, with different apps will be pretty cool. So I'm excited about uh, Cortana on the desktop, even if it's even if I even if you just use it as a search bar, I think it's going to be useful because I assume, you know, if it doesn't know what you're talking about, it's going to drop back into search, which is essentially what happens on the phone. Right. You you know, it's just it is the way that you search everything. And then office apps, these look these are turning out to look really great, just like they look uh, they look great on iOS and Android, but they look great on Windows as well. Yeah, I think one of the 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 really interesting things is not only are, you know, the the phone office apps getting more powerful and being able to do things that, you know, you see more often on the desktop side, but they mentioned that it's even integrating word into the mail app. So you'll be able to one, make more full featured, you know, HTML like emails, but you'll be able to, you know, when people send you stuff too, it'll be able to open it up in that mode more easily. Mm -hmm. So I, I think there's a lot of really cool, powerful things coming that way. And just in general on the phone, a lot of the stuff that you saw really, you know, brings a lot of the desktop side of windows to the phone while still carrying that phone personality. So you don't feel it like it's yeah. a desktop. And the performance looked amazing. I mean, they showed off a PowerPoint and the animations were, were perfect. And, and the thing is, you know, that that's one thing I think I personally am going to be really critical on. Uh, I do understand I'm running the, uh, the preview builds on, um, on my phone. Um, but the, the performance, uh, on some of these eight one builds that I've been getting just seem really laggy and slow as of late for me. And being able to have something that's a little bit more performant is definitely, uh, a necessity, a necessity for me, especially since obviously I, I had a new child this week, uh, my wife has an iPhone and taking pictures with an iPhone was a lot better than a windows phone. Just being able to get them out and get them quick. You know, you want babies change their expressions every quarter of a second and just being able to jam on that button and have it take perfect pictures is, is awesome. And I, I can't do that on mine. Mine takes good pictures, yeah, but not fast. Yeah. Cause you're not on denim, correct? No, none of my phones have okay. denim. Denim makes that way, way faster. But at the same time, I'm using also some, you know, third party phones. They're, they're not Lumia's. They're not, no, they're not made from Nokia slash Microsoft. You know, I'm one of my favorite phones right now is the blue phone, the, the win HD. It's a great mm-hmm. phone, but I, you know, there's no way it's going to get that firmware because it's not a Lumia phone. Yeah. So I, but I'm wondering that the firmware somehow made that way faster on mine. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering how that enabled that, you know, was it, you know, can, can blue do the exact same thing? You know, is there like a deficiency in there? Cause you're saying that the photos are pretty slow on that one. That's, it, that's the one you tried. I, I, I won't say they're slow. 
as a whole, but compared to the iPhone, I, I haven't seen any cell phone camera that can keep up with consistent quality and the speed. Yeah. You either, you either get the same speed and the, and, and the photos suck the second, third and fourth ones, or you just have consistent photos, but you can only take photos every three or four seconds. Mm. Yeah. Mine uh, on the 1520 with denim, it will do like a photo every second. It's pretty awesome. Yeah. But on, on an iPhone, you can just jam, you can hit 10 pictures. Yeah. 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 It's crazy. Uh, let's see here. So we talked about office, which looks pretty amazing. The Spartan browser. What do you think of this? I, I, I think this is one of those things that they really teased and there's a lot more to be said about it than what they, what they've announced so far. Uh, yeah. I, like I'm hoping for, you know, that they didn't talk about extensions at all. No, so that's the big mystery. Yeah. yeah that's, that's what I'm waiting to hear about. Yeah. I mean, they've announced that the, it's going to be easier to make extension f- extensions for and it's going to be more pluggable and i'm really excited to see that but that's all that's been said yeah Um, and i don't have any secret knowledge here but i I don't know if there's if there's any reason why you can't make something like this support chrome extensions i mean because i've i've built it was a long actually it was a i built firefox extensions i guess i've never built chrome extensions but i've looked into it and i mean you're you're you know the object model that you're manipulating could be sort of emulated in another browser so I'm curious if there's any kind of technical blocker to make that happen. I'm not sure, but I, I think the other two big uh, items that were announced um, were the annotations or inking, um, mm-hmm. where you can not only do that, but save it and make them shareable via OneDrive. So you could even collaborate upon your annotations uh, with someone else. And and yeah. the one that I think is a little bit more interesting, I love the reading list app uh, that's you have to download separately from the store. And uh, the new Spartan browser will have an integrated reading uh, reading list that'll sync between all of your logged in devices. And I, I to me, I think that's a key part of the browser. And having that is one integrated in is something I'm very excited about. Yeah, same here. Definitely. Uh, let's see here. Xbox to PC streaming. This was really cool. So like my my 10 year old, you know, he always I, I have the Xbox one hooked up to my uh, my big TV in the living room. And he comes down, dad, I want to play Xbox. And it basically means like, I can't do anything I want to do, right? I can't play any of my games. I can't watch TV. And I usually kick him out and he has to go in a different room. But now it looks like he can actually stream the Xbox to his PC in his room. That's very cool. One thing I didn't understand, and maybe you can answer this, Carl, is how does the controller work? Does the controller still wirelessly connect to the Xbox? Or do you have to like pair it with the computer? I see him thinking. You know, I, I, this is just <laughs> speculation, but I can see having a, some sort of pass through connection through the PC. Yeah, I, I think it almost has to be because because, you know, the um, that Bluetooth, you know, only only goes so far on the Xbox. Right? I mean, they can't count on that working across your house. Yeah, especially, you know, I know the layout of your house and your kids rooms are up on a different floor on the other side of the house. So, yeah. so that that would really be stretching, especially going through walls. But yeah. yeah, this is, I, I really like that scenario that uh, you provided, you know, mm-hmm. I, I want the nice big TV and I want to kick my kids off to the, you know, computer, you know, they have mm-hmm. access to that computer, but you know, the Xbox can still be, but be by the TV. I think that's uh, something a lot of people would run into and find useful. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be interesting. Like you have a note in here, you're talking about, you know, this, this becomes windows to windows streaming. And what would be really interesting is if I, you know, if you have multiple TVs, like what, what about the the TV where I have an Xbox 360 on it? You know, like that that one is that that's an older piece of hardware. But too bad I couldn't stream to that um, or to some other kind of box. Or you know, I've read about people wanting to stream the opposite way, right? They want to go from a PC game and they actually want to play that in their living room. 
And that that's a very interesting scenario as well. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I've I've really seen since Windows 8 and Windows Phone 8 came out is really the convergence of everything that Microsoft's doing. And really, this looks to me, and that's why I put that note in there, if we're doing Xbox to PC streaming, it's only a matter of time before we do PC to Xbox and PC to PC. Um, so like I said, for that scenario gave is really good, but there's a lot of other scenarios that this opens up in the future. Yeah. Yeah, it'd be nice if this was all sort of one generic protocol, right? Like we have Miracast for display mirroring and we have, uh, you know, whatever protocol this is for Xbox to PC. It'd be nice if that was all wrapped up into one super efficient protocol. Uh, the other so, thing that so, we... Uh, so you want, oh, go you ahead. want X window? <laughs> <laughs> sort of, or 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 just RD, you know, RDP now even is, is getting there, right? Yeah, I mean, we got remote app. And <laughs> yeah, remote app, yeah, I was using uh, RDP under the hood. And uh, it's getting smart where like if there's a video, you know, if there is video playing in a portion of the screen, it streams it in a little bit different way. Yeah. And if it's a window, it will just send over the coordinates. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's like we're we're sort of there, but the pieces haven't quite hooked together yet. <laughs> I just wanted to to just work, you know. Yeah. Um, oh, and then one thing that uh, that we forgot to mention about the whole Xbox thing is um, it looks like and, and this wasn't entirely clear to me. It looks like it's. Uh, much, much easier now. If you want to build a game that's going to work on Xbox and the PC, it looks like that's a, that's a possibility now to to essentially write the same game. Yeah, um, they announced that build last year that, you know, Xbox will be part of the universal app solution. So yeah. in the future, there you know, right now when you do file new project and check universal app, there you get the Windows Store and the Windows Phone apps and, and the shared project as well. And it seems like any day now when they announce that next SDK, there'll be an Xbox app that you'll be able to use as part of the universal apps. Yeah. This though, I thought was this looked like if you were a game maker who was making, you know, like a triple a Xbox game, not, not even a universal app, but you're writing like pure C plus plus for the Xbox that you could without a whole bunch of trouble, move that over to PC as well without having to port it. Cause they're both the X86 architecture, right? Yeah. Well, my point too is you can still do C plus uh, plus WinRT apps. Sure, sure, sure. So, yeah, yeah. So, oh, so you're just saying that you think that's that could be the mechanism for everything. It's just, well, uh, it it's universal, so it's you know not just a clever name. Well, I'm going to jump down <laughs> to this in the list, but there's a, there was another article that Microsoft had out, and really the the big takeaway is if you want to develop for Windows 10 in particular, prepare mm-hmm. for it now by learning universal apps. Yep. Um. That's the evolution of everything that they're going to be doing. And that's, that's, they've been telling us this nonstop since build last year. Yep. Just pick up and learn universal apps. It is the future. It is yep. the way of all things new. Totally agree. Which the next uh, thing is new and sounds pretty awesome. You want to tell us about yeah. it? Yeah. 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 So this was, uh, this was a big shocker. Not a lot of people knew about this. Uh, it's HoloLens. So this this is kind of mind blowing and, and you sort of have to see a demo to like really understand it. I explained it to my kids and it, it took it took about a about two minutes. And then it in the third minute of explaining it to them, they figured out how this was a terrible idea. And I'll explain that in a minute. But uh, basically, this is like a it's like a, a helmet, not even a helmet. It's like a uh, like a pair of glasses that you wear that sort of wrap around your head. And it provides augmented reality. So the, the name is is, you know, a little misleading. Uh, because it's, it's just augmented reality. So you can see through these goggles. Let's pretend like they were turned off. You can see the room like normal, but whenever you turn these things on, they can superimpose things within the room. So it could be a Skype call floating in the air. 
You could have your apps running on the wall. You could have a TV on the wall. And one thing I explained to my kids was you could be watching TV and be like, oh, you know, I wish my TV was bigger. And you just kind of drag it in the air and make your TV on the wall bigger. And that's one of the things that they showed in the video, too. I mean, I I had to watch this video about five times to fully. I mean, just that section of the video five times to fully see everything that they were trying to show there. I mean, they packed a lot of demos into like two minutes for that. Yeah. And then, you know, this thing is going to be lower resolution than real life, right? (laughs) It just has to be. Um, So, you know, you could even take your TV could be in the center of this. You could just use your normal TV and be watching that. But, you know, in theory, your TV could be like the center of the image and then it could have, uh, you know, be surrounded, uh, you know, with other channels or it could just be that picture extended into your walls and everything. So it's kind of like the Illuma room concept. Um, so this is, this is really cool. And and I think one of the key things that really makes this, you know, an idea that will work at least better than a lot of other solutions is it's entirely self-contained solution. You don't, you don't need a computer. You don't need a phone. You don't need to pair it to anything. Um, this is something you can just wear at some, at some level. Yep. And what, what I think is going to make this a hit is the kids, because there was a demo of Minecraft and I've heard the, the reporters that were, that were talking about this. And they said that the Minecraft demo was, you know, was completely legit. Um, it, it's as good as what it looks like in the in the videos. So you you can sit there and play 3D Minecraft in the real world. Um, you know, you can be building them on your coffee table or on your living room floor. And when you're done, you could just, you know, blow them up with a bomb or whatever. You can also, you know, put a hole in the wall of your house and you could look out and see Minecraft world. And that was part of that video, too. And that's when my my kids uh, brought up the safety concern because they're like, so we could look out our window and it could be Minecraft world. And I said, yeah, yeah, totally. And they're like, okay, what if I go out the window? <laughs> and I'm like, uh, you will plummet to your death. I'm sorry. <laughs> and then my oldest son's like, okay, okay, I won't do that. <laughs> He's like, what if I walk? What do you, what if I do to the wall? And then I walk through that. I'm like, you can't walk through it. There's a wall there. And he's like, oh yeah, there's a wall there. Like you can just see the gears turning. Like, you know, just not, not, not fully understanding it, but then, then he, he totally understood what was going on. And so, and they, uh, they, they, they want one bad. So have either of you read, uh, there's two books by, uh, Daniel Suarez called, uh, Damon and freedom TM. If not, mm-hmm. these are great books. I recommend them either way. But one of the pieces of technology that were really core in there where there's these glasses and to the average person who wasn't part of this subculture, they just look like glasses. But mm-hmm. once you were part of you know this system, and I'm not going to get in, you know, give anything away, but these glasses would overlay information mm-hmm. and it would it would highlight things in the physical world and it would actually create like, you know, it's, it's having another world that nobody else can see on top of it. You know, it, it was, it was kind of cool, but you know, to me, this is a very close first step to, you know, that piece of technology. And as soon as you read about it in a book and see all the cool things it can do, you're just like, I want one of those and they need to make them as soon as possible. And this, mm-hmm. and this gets really close to being that first step there. Well, you know, there was a company that, that had that vision and they even demonstrated it and then they completely failed. Yeah. That was Google glass. And you, did you remember those, those early videos of Google glass? Yeah. I mean, they're, they're amazing. Um, there, there was a lot of problems with the devices. Um, and I'm but, not but, saying, but the, the device, but it's not even issues with the devices. Yeah. The device didn't do what they said it would yeah. do period. So if you watch the the videos, they were like walking around and they said, I need directions to this location. And it would like highlight on the ground, you know, oh, like, yeah, go up here and turn left. And it would show like your email would pop up in the sky. They were showing augmented reality. And then 
it, you know, I, I Google glass came out and people are like, well, that's not really what it does, but they were, people were still excited about it. And I tried it on like a few months ago and I put it on and I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, there's a tiny little screen up there. Like that's lame. What? <laughs> I mean, it's still useful, but and, it's not like overlaying the real world. And, and that, and to bring it back a bit, I mean, that does get closer to my initial rea- reaction to this because mm-hmm. I wasn't able to watch this live. And when I first heard about it, I immediately thought of Google glass and what the failure yeah. was. Um, yeah. If, if they can deliver some of this kind of stuff, um, that would be amazing. I still mm-hmm. find it. I still think it's going to be an uphill battle because this is a yeah. very niche, niche product and a very niche market. Yeah. Yeah. And the technology required is kind of insane. So I've heard the, the prototypes that the press have been using. They've said that it's completely real. It's amazing. Uh, the question is, you know, when you don't have like these two giant computers, that are powering it, you know, and you have an atom based processor or whatever the heck it, you know, ends up being within that, um, you know, visor device there is, you know, what's that going to be like? So, um, the nice thing is we got a couple months, they can, uh, they can use the shrink ray on it and figure all that good stuff out. Yeah. So the next thing I see that's on here is another device of sorts, Mm -hmm. the surface hub. You want to explain what this is, Jason? Sure, sure. So this is, yeah, this is uh, based on that Perceptive Pixel acquisition from a couple of years ago. So the Perceptive Pixel was basically a giant TV that's a capacitive screen. So there have been a lot of touchscreens. We've used them, Carl, where uh, they use like infrared rays or even cameras. And uh, they're good. They're not great. But the Perceptive Pixel was just perfect because it had that capacitive uh, touchscreen. So they were they were always amazing devices. But this is sort of the next evolution of that, where it's got a full PC in it. Still has a, a amazing touch capabilities. It's got uh, pen capabilities that that is just flawless and and uh, you know no lag on that. And then it also has, a, from what I could tell, built-in camera. Um, I don't know if it has like built-in connect function. I'm not quite sure how that well, works. They did show in the demo that uh, she said when when I walked up to the Surface Hub, it knew who yeah. I was. So it, it yeah. has to have some recognition abilities. Yeah, yeah, and then. Um, uh, new software on here too. That the whole idea is to make it so that whenever you go into a meeting room, if that meeting room is, uh, you know, hooked into your calendar as an example, you might just walk uh, or you you might just walk into the room and it's all ready to go. That's kind of I think that's that's kind of best case. Worst case is you have to go in and like push start meeting. Yeah. Um. So that's really cool because that's always an issue in meeting rooms, right? Oh yeah. And yeah, and I I was in like a meeting recently. It was a it was actually like a two day thing. And there was a perceptive pixel up there and what ended up happening. I think it was like the first day, like somebody at lunch went up and started playing around with it. We never really used it much. Um, if, if, if you have like the 84 inch version of this, you know, you have this instead of a TV in a conference room, this is going to be pretty killer. I would love to use a room with this cause you can walk up and use it for everything and uh, mark things up. I saw on Twitter, somebody said the, the canonical demo for, for these screens is you circle something and you draw an arrow pointing to it. <laughs> But uh, I don't know, this thing, this is just really cool. It's just, it, this is a refinement of amazing technology all boxed up into one cool device. Yeah, I, I think the problem with this is is the price. And just at, at this point, because it's so expensive. Well, we don't know the price, well, right? Well, the thing is, it, um, we know what the prices of the previous ones were, which I think were astronomical. And, yeah, yeah. and e- even if they've made a lot of, you know, ways into this, they're still marketing it towards, you know, large corporations and education, which hints that it's still going to be very expensive. And, and even though this is a nice generational, you know, leap forward, um, I think until they can, you know, flesh out a little bit more of this, it's, 
it's not going to be anything huge. It's definitely something nice. It'll be fun to play with, but uh, nothing that'll make a huge splash as far as I, I would predict. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I heard I, the old Perceptive Pixel was, I, I would put it in the not affordable care category. I mean, I don't really know of any companies that that used one. It was mostly used for demo purposes, but um, at least my understanding from the public messages I've heard, this one is supposed to be, you know, hopefully within that affordable category. Um, it's supposed to the, the 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 one of the biggest improvements was actually the cost. I should mention too, this thing is 4K now, which of course is is kind of kind of pushing the price in the opposite direction. Yep. So we'll have to wait and see on that one. Um, 500 bucks, I'll take one. <laughs> yeah, somehow I don't think they're going to be 500 bucks. <laughs> oh, dang it, dang it. <laughs> and everybody thought Apple was going to come out with a TV, right? <laughs> uh, let's see here. Uh, OneDrive music integration. This is pretty cool. So this is throw all your music, all your uh, music files into your OneDrive and underneath a music folder. And then whenever you go into the Xbox app, or if you go to even xbox.music.com, you'll be able to play your OneDrive music right from there. And it pulls in all the album art and all that good stuff. And it just makes things magically work. That sounds awesome. That's, I'm waiting. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm waiting for it. It's something I've wanted for a while because, you know, yeah. I hate moving my music over. Um, the current thing that, uh, you know, Xbox does is they kind of do that cloud match stuff. But there's a lot of stuff that I have that's not in there or I'll have like a version that's different and I don't like the version that's in Xbox. Um, Yeah. So once this is made public, which I think uh, I saw something in the next couple of months, um, I'm definitely going to be excited about it because I can have one spot to kind of have my canonical collection. Yep. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Not much else to say about that. It just works and it's cool. Awesome. Um, okay. And then build, what do you want to say about build Carl? Um, it's sold out really quick this year. So either you have a ticket by now or you're, or you're, or, or you're crying, or you're like, crying like 45 minutes or something like that. Yeah. I, it was probably even less than it that. It was just under 45 minutes. Um, Jason and I will both be there. So that's exciting. And uh, hopefully we can do a meetup with some people. We're still trying to flesh out details on that. So if mm-hmm. you're, uh, going to be at build and want to get a hold of me and Jason. We'll definitely try to make that happen. Mm-hmm. We'll, oh, we'll have so some folks there, but I probably won't be there, but uh, we'll, okay. we'll, oh man. Yeah. I'll, I'll be at ignite and, uh, and a few other things around there, but uh, okay. Yeah. I'm not sure if I'm going to that or not. I suppose that's right in your backyard too. Yeah. So yeah. Ignite is right after build and PowerShell summit is right before build. <laughs> so, okay. Uh, yeah, I can only be I can only be gone from home so many days without and and come back home with my wife still here. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know how that goes. Um, the only other thing I'd like to say about build is if you didn't get in and you're a member of Develop and have a lot of points, if you have twenty thousand points uh, laying around, you can exchange that in for a ticket to build. Um, you have to do that be- really? before the end of January. Uh, they have a, a deadline that they have to have that ticket given out or tickets given out by January thirtieth. Okay. Yeah. This sold out so quick. And I, there were people, I mean, I, I, I genuinely feel bad for these people. Um, I mean, there were so many people just upset, you know, that I just saw a lot of comments on Twitter, like, Hey, I wanted to go. And, you know, I tried because the website, I guess was pretty horrendous. Oh, I was stuck on the payment page for 10 minutes and that yep. makes you nervous when your credit card's attached. You know, they should go to the cloud. <laughs> they won't have this. Yeah. Problems. And was this even, you know, was the website, was it even first party? I guess is my other question. No, it was done by another party. Okay. So that's, that's the issue now, you know, I would, uh, I'm sure there's people at Microsoft that would love to work with that company to, to, you know, say, Hey, 
if you would have been on the cloud and 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 work with them. Yeah, you think though, you know, if Microsoft was spending its money to have its site done, that would be a contingency they could make. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I don't know. Did, I, I have I have no insight into that process. I totally agree, though. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, yeah. It just you know, just just the outside perspective. <laughs> yeah, cool. Okay, so speaking of awesomeness and cloud and DevOps, let's talk DevOps. All right. <laughs> So, uh, what is DevOps, and uh, and where can I get one? <laughs> well, if you're on if you're on LinkedIn or any of the job boards, you can find uh, you can find DevOps roles all around. I can I can order one there. You can find one there. So, <laughs> some sites so there's some products out there that say you can download the DevOps and uh, oh nice yeah, uh, DevOps in a box that is, is a product that's out there. It's uh, like uh, what is it? Downloadmoreram.com or something like that. Where you can download yeah. more memory. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, the whole the whole thing around DevOps is it, it's not it's not product. It's not a te- it's not particular technology. It's not a stack of anything. It's not cloud. It could it could include all of those things. It's really just kind of this umbrella around. Uh, Around how we manage our work and how we and how our operations folks talk to the development folks, talk to the business folks, uh, marketing, sales. It, it's aligning your business for a common goal. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, one of the big, you know, it kind of grew out of this conversation between development and operations because traditionally you had this environment where you have your developers; they they work getting a release of software up to a certain point, toss over the wall operations says, Hey, we're, we're good with this. Go for it. Get it into production. We're done now. And maybe there's some instructions on how to install it. Maybe not. And then things go south and the operations guys are fighting fires for, for days. And, uh, and they they perceive the developers being off at their release party, having fun while they're working, you know, 24 hours a day. And it leads to some hard feelings. And then uh, on the flip side, you have the developers like, well, hey, if you want us to write this stuff to work like it does in production, give us a production-like environment, and you know, let let's let's get some resources there, and and, and let's you know, let's have this conversation ahead of time. And so, there's very often this friction, and in a lot of organizations too, you have this kind of uh, trying to cover your butt syndrome, where uh, oh yeah, you know, it's not my fault, it's X's fault. Right, and so in in the DevOps space, we try to uh, move towards this uh, kind of blameless postmortems and things like that. So rather than an outage, having some VP coming down and I need someone's head for this because we're now down and this is making me look bad on my quarterly numbers, and so everybody's looking for a reason it's somebody else's fault. In in kind of this blameless culture, say everyone. Nobody, there's no disincentive to telling the truth as far as what happened. And it allows you to get to root cause a lot faster. So uh, what a lot of this, you know, kind of the squishy feely stuff kind of boils down to is opening up these lines of communication so we can do things faster, you know, and hey, if there's a challenge in getting software from development into production, what can we do to streamline that process? How can we, how can we put some automation in place, for example, to make it easier for developers to spin up production-like environments, for software to be pushed into these different environments and migrated through, and that thing and that 
like connection strings and things are changed consistently throughout environments. And so that's kind of where this, you know, whole, whole DevOps conversation came from. And uh, it really grew out of a lot of the web operations space and is now kind of making its inroads into, into the enterprise. Uh, earlier or uh, yeah, earlier last year, there was the DevOps Enterprise Summit, which had a number of large organizations, uh, places like Target and uh, what else is there? Uh, Department of Homeland Security, um, uh, drawing blanks on some of the other names, but there was a number of uh, number of large organizations talking about their challenges and, uh, and and their DevOps journey that they've gone on as they as they strive to implement these practices. So, um, there's an acronym that a lot of people use to refer to DevOps. Uh, it's CAMS. It's culture, automation, measurement, and sharing, and culture ends up being kind of this real important part, and that's what that's that kind of breaking down those silos getting people talking together, getting people caring about the same things, kind of aligning, uh, aligning those benefits. Um, you know, if, if I'm a development manager, for example, and my, and my incentives are to get features done and the ops manager's job is to keep things from breaking, we are actively incented to work against each other. He, right. he gets a benefit from obstructing me and I get a benefit subverting him. Yeah, so I, I guess, you know, I, I've worked at places that I'd say that we tried to do a DevOps kind of way of working. And I've worked at places where you, we have those, you know, separate silos of teams. So is is DevOps a spectrum? You know, can I ease my way into becoming a, a DevOps uh, work environment if I don't already have one? Oh, definitely. Uh, th this stuff doesn't happen overnight. Uh, it, it, in the case of like your, your startups, you don't have a DevOps problem because everybody's doing everything. And when companies are relatively small, it's a lot easier because everyone can, you pretty much have to talk to everybody to get stuff done. As organizations grow, you start, you know, siloing off for, uh, you know, for a lot of performance reasons, uh, consolidating functionality, all those things. The downside of that is these groups stop talking. And so you can, you, you can implement these things in waves. You can, uh, you know, it, it's not a, you know, okay, today we are a DevOps organization. I mean, we saw this back with when Agile, uh, you know, kind of came onto the scene and became kind of the way that people were going to, uh, to, do so to develop software. You'd have uh, people go to a, a bunch of people go to a boot camp on, you know, to be a scrum masters and then they descend on the company and boom, you're an Agile organization now. Our, our PMs will tell you how agile you're going to be on what particular features. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Can I get a discount by ordering DevOps and agile together? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, f so, so you can't, act, well, you shouldn't actually go out and get a DevOps certification. Uh, there are companies that have a DevOps certification of some sort, um, but it's not, that's not, that's not anything what it is. This is, it's really about, you know, it's culture change and culture change is slow. But I mean, when you have an, uh, an established organization that has a way, a pattern of doing things, it takes time for that pattern to change. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so there's, there definitely is a spectrum. And that first, the first wall to knock down is, is start talking to each other. You know, if you're a developer, you go over and have lunch with the ops guys every now and again, or, you know, uh, do some brown bag lunches between the groups. Uh, 
back a couple jobs ago, I worked for a company called EdgeNet, and I was on the ops team there. And I would go to our developer patterns and practices meeting, number one, so they could see what an ops guy looked like. And, <laughs> and, and to, you know, to, to show that, hey, I cared about the stuff that they're working on, because eventually that's going to float down the wall and I'm going to have to support it. Mm-hmm. And eventually, you know, and some of them knew me from the community as well. And so it wasn't a hard conversation to start having, but just kind of showing up and, hey, I'm going to be there and I'm willing to play in your backyard if you want to come over and play in mine every now and again. And so let's start having these conversations about, hey, we're working on a new project. What kind of infrastructure are we going to need? What kind of te- what kind of test environments are we going to need? Let's start having these conversations right up front, and rather than waiting till okay, this uh, we've got a press release going out on Monday, so the software has it's Friday afternoon. The software has to go out over the weekend. Good luck with that, you know, uh, which, which tends to lead to hard feelings all around. Have you met anybody that's against DevOps? And if so, why would why would somebody be against DevOps? So uh, I, I haven't personally interacted with uh with uh, with too many people who have said they're against devops but there are def- there is definitely that sentiment out there um a year t- uh, a year and a half ago i was at uh I-, I was at the microsoft mvp summit and i had brought 100 copies of the phoenix project to give out and was just mm-hmm. starting to talk about devops and just to kind of kick start some conversations and there are some people who are pretty entrenched in their uh, kind of waterfall process where we have this very structured thing that we we don't want to let go of or or don't want to let go of this com- kind of command and control idea of, well, if I'm not telling them what to do right now, I have no idea what they're doing. And- yeah, that, that book was amazing because it, it, was, it was so realistic. I mean, I know the whole scenario was like fictional, but it describes my experience perfectly. <laughs> like it's, it, it could basically be a nonfiction book. Yeah, it, well, it, it's drawn from a lot of real-world scenarios, and uh, so I mean, th- but there's this, this whole, you know, this whole thing of uh, uh, this whole belief that uh, in, in a lot of entrenched organizations that we want that managers' sole job is to kind of dole out the work and mm-hmm. and keep on people to make sure it's getting done. And in a DevOps organization, that's not quite how it works. You know, it. it the managers are, are really about helping you making sure you're able to get, you're able to get your work done and that, you know, t- tasks are, are getting, and that obstacles are out of your way. And so that, that's a, that's a change for people. And people will, people will try to resist that. Um, you know, it, having worked now for a couple of companies as a remote employee, that's a big change for, uh, for a number of, for, for a number of organizations of whether or not to allow remote employees, because, mm-hmm. If they're not in the office, how can I see what they're doing? And it, it really comes down to you know this kind of lack and lack of faith in people. And so, in a lot of organizations that have embraced DevOps, there is a there's a there's a, a effort to hire quality people because you want good people on your team because you want the teams to kind of be able to take charge of things and move forward with things. And it, it's not necessarily the manager's job to do all of that. Manager's job is to put together a good team and make sure that, that, that they're getting the things they need to get their job done mm-hmm. versus, you know, but some people like that kind of power trip and, and, and feel that it works for them. Yeah. yeah. 
So you used to uh, used to work at Stack Exchange, which is very cool. Um, whenever you gave, whenever I was there for your uh, presentation, you had talked about some stories about working at Stack Exchange, and I think you were still there at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess one question I always have is, what you know, what was it like working there? So Stack Exchange is awesome. Um, it was it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. Uh, every now and again, I kind of like, why did I why did I leave that job? But uh, <laughs> So working at Stack Exchange was, was very cool because number one, that was my first job as a full-time remote employee. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was a sysadmin or a site liability engineer on, on the operations team at, at Stack Exchange. And it was it was one of the it was like the first DevOps organization that I worked for. You know, that, that they didn't call it DevOps at the time, but that's what they did. Um, yeah. And you know, to them it was just we're doing our jobs. You had you had developers, you had sysadmins. We all talked together. We we collaborated on things. Um, yeah, that's just the way things worked there. And um, one th- one of the, one of the challenges of working at Stack Exchange is everybody's scary smart. Um, if you've read any of Joel Spolsky's stuff on hiring, um, they take that stuff very seriously there. Like when you interview, there is uh, you interview with with a, a good portion of people. You know, as teams grew. It, it wasn't everybody, but like when I interviewed there, I interviewed with everybody on my team and, oh, okay. and then, yep. and then their manager and then Joel Spolsky. Yeah. And anybody in that chain from the first interview, from the lowest ranked seniority member of that team, all the way up to Joel can sit. If anybody says no, it's a no hire, you know? And so th- there's a, there's a great emphasis on team dynamics. Yep. So it, no, that's it, good. It, that's good. That's, that's practice pretty consistently at Microsoft as well for the hiring. Anybody, anybody in that process can say no. Yep. And, uh, and there, you know, and even if, even if it was somebody that Joel recommended for the job, you could, right. you could say no. And it was no, and the CEO wasn't going to come down and override you. Yeah. And so that it, so there was, a, there was a really strong emphasis on building strong quality teams that got along because you're going to have to work with this person and you're gonna have to trust them to, you know, have your back when you're, yeah, when they're on call, when you're on call, that you need that they're going to be available and able to respond, and um, and that you're going to be able to work day to day with them. And so, you know, it wasn't about getting butts and seats; it was about getting teammates that you wanted to work with there. Mm-hmm. So, so you have a bunch of scary smart people that work well together, but man, everybody was opinionated. <laughs> everybody, you know, everyone's got their view of what what's going to work right, and some, you know, some people are closer than others on it. But you know, you had to be pretty—you had to be pretty confident in your position and be able to hold your own in, in, discuss, in discussing, you know, why you want to do something or, or why it was best implemented your way. Uh, mm-hmm. Because there were a lot of other people that had really good ideas and or really good reasons why that your your idea might be a challenge. So, you know, so there are definite challenges in that type of environment as well. The other thing that was really cool about working at Stack Exchange was just the velocity of things. So one of the differences uh, at Stack Exchange to other environments I've worked in is, you know, we might have a release, you know, it was fast if we released every week or two, you know, there might be a couple of releases kind of together if there were different products, but at Stack Exchange, we were releasing software multiple times a day. Mm -hmm. And for the operations team, it was almost a non-issue because we didn't touch it. It was all the deployment of the software was all automated. You know, if we were spinning up a new project, then yeah, maybe we got to spin up some new boxes, things like that. If something goes wrong, we might get pulled into into that. But the developers really owned that process, and of, of you know 
taking that software, making sure it was stable enough to go out, getting it out into production and maintaining it as it went forward. You know, it watched, you know, our, our developers watched the event log uh, or the uh, exception logs. You know, if things were, if things were going wrong and the developer who pushed that code owned that code, you know, he, mm-hmm. he owned that deployment and he was responsible. You couldn't, you, you shouldn't have, and you, and you were culturally not allowed to push code and run out the door. So you push code that kicked off a build. You were responsible for that, making sure that that gets into production safely. And so, uh, you know, so, so that was, that was a, a real mind shift, but it was, it felt really, really good. Yeah. I, I think that's something that's once you get to the point where you have all those little pieces in line, where you have that, you know, like you said, you, you have your production environment, you have your test, you have that automation between there. Once you have all those little things in there, you can feel comfortable putting the developers in charge of making sure that it's, it's functioning there. You know, I, I think that's just a really fun you know idea to get behind and, you know, kind of an end goal to set up if you're not there to challenge yourself to get to that point. Yeah. And, and I know that you've in the past, you've distinguished between like a release and a deployment. You were talking about, uh, you know, uh, deploying all the time, but that might not necessarily mean that that feature is out there, right? It could be turned off as an example. Yep. Yeah. So one, one, you know, so continuous to, so there's, there's a couple of terms here that are really common and really misunderstood. So there, mm-hmm. there's continuous deployment and there's continuous delivery. Continuous delivery is that my master branch is always in a releasable state. Mm-hmm. I build off that. I can deploy off that, but I don't necessarily, when I deploy is up to me. Continuous deployment is I check in that gets pushed all the way through. Both are, both are valid scenarios, uh, but they, they tend to get used interchangeably and they are definitely not the same thing. Feature release is a, still a third topic. So one of the very common strategies used in companies that use continuous deployment or continuous delivery is feature flags. Mm-hmm. And the simplest can be that there's a toggle in a config file somewhere that the application reads. Uh, more elaborate, you might have an API endpoint that you hit. More elaborate than that, you might have a management console where people can go turn things on and off. Um, and that what that type of stuff allows you to do is shipping code does not mean enabling new features and new features then can be enabled when, bi- when the business needs them to be enabled, not, right. nec- not necessarily when the code ships. So you don't have to wait to ship code and you can get that code done earlier ahead of time. You can, you can start testing some of those backend pieces. Uh, one common practice uh, is called dark launching and like, for example, Facebook's chat service, right? Uh, when they were first integrating that, they shipped all the code for that. They built the backend service first, then they shipped some JavaScript and it didn't turn chat on in your Facebook page, but it simulated conversations from your browser back to the service so that they could get some real world testing on that. Then when they were ready to enable it, flip the feature toggle. Now all of a sudden you have a chat widget and the fake stuff starts, the fake stuff stops. They have a, okay, they have a problem. Okay, cool. Just sort of enabling it piecemeal. Yep. And, and, uh, but it also allows them to kind of do some, you know, do some end to end testing and not necessarily expose up things up to the public. Uh, one of the things that we did that was similar to that at Stack Exchange. Uh, so, so at Stack, Stack Exchange followed a lot of that, like a lot of the features that you'll see in Stack Exchange over the next couple of months, they're already in production. It's just a matter of when they want to turn the stuff on. Or, or when they, you know, or, or maybe there's a few more bits that need to make their way out 
to kind of complete a story. But, but yeah, that uh, you know, so so feature flags and having uh, making the ability to release software a business decision versus having this technical hang up around it. Versus, mm-hmm. well, we can't, we can't, uh, we have to have this release go out this weekend so that Monday we can have this new feature turned on for our press release because that we had to have these press releases in ahead of time, right? Well, rather than have your ops team work all weekend to get software deployed and working, why not have that code out there in production on Monday, the week before, and it just hidden behind a toggle that on the next Monday morning, boom, we flip that and now things are live. Yeah, that's, a re- you know, something that I've used before and it's surprisingly easy to implement. You know, it's one of those things that, you know, up front, it sounds a little bit more daunting, but, you know, it can be as simple as, you know, Boolean in a, in a database. Yep. Yep. Now, going forward, you, you talked that you're no longer at Stack Exchange. Um, and, you know, you've moved to Chef.io. Now, uh, what is your role there now? Okay. So uh, back in January, uh, back in July, uh, back in July of 2014, I joined, I joined Chef. And uh, I joined Chef as a technical community manager. So uh, basically, they hired me to go out and talk to folks and to do training and talk about PowerShell and testing and source control and config management and all the cool stuff that can help make operations folks and developers more successful in their environments. Uh, So and I had a ton of fun over that six months um, in that in that particular role. Uh, then in January, we had a bit of a reorganization. So our community team was part of our, our engineering organization, um, and engineering got completely restructured. So we no longer have a community team. We have a community engineering team. I'm no longer a technical community manager. I'm now a software development engineer on our community engineering team. So, uh, <laughs> so it, yeah, it's a little, little bit of a change. Uh, what, what that means for my role is I still get to go out and talk to folks. I still get to go to conferences and give talks on PowerShell and DSC and, and chef and all that kind of fun stuff and testing. But my, one of my primary focuses is on the development and curation of our open source projects and getting, and kind of getting to be an open source developer for chef. Uh, okay. So at, my team is uh, responsible for helping Make sure that our because Chef itself is uh, made up of a bunch of open source projects. Uh, there's a core Chef project that is our Chef client and a bunch uh, and some of the other capabilities. Uh, but that's all open source, and we have community contributors who have commit rights to our projects, and we're putting in more and more infrastructure in place to make that experience better. Uh, one of the things we're moving towards. Uh, and we're shooting forward for the end of the end of this year is nightly builds to have nightly builds out and then a, a stable release cadence so that when our community contributors merge stuff to master, then it's a very short period of time before they can see that actually in a shipped product. Okay. Um, we have, uh, we have week, uh, biweekly community developer meetings to help guide the pro the, the, uh, guide the, uh, development and, uh, goals for Chef Software, mm-hmm. and anybody in the community can participate. We have an RFC process to help kind of guide and structure the project, and anybody can interact with that. It's all it's all out in GitHub, and so part of my role is to be a visible part of our community engineering team, uh, interacting 
in that manner and and, and an IRC and our mailing lists. And so, yeah, we, you know, we're visible, but we're technical. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're still visible. Cause I want to make sure that, you know, when I'm out about, I get, get a chance to talk to you. Cause it's uh, I always learn something new. So um, for those that aren't familiar with it, what is chef? So chef is, a, is an automation platform uh, primarily for configuration management. So uh, what that means is we want you to be able to model your infrastructure as code and then have an agent that can apply that and keep those nodes, keep your servers, your VMs, your server, uh, your cloud nodes, whatever in the desired state so that you don't have this configuration drift so that you, that they're set up the way you expect them to. So when you deploy software to them or when people are using the software on them, they operate consistently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cause humans are, are terrible at this notoriously terrible. Yeah. I mean, so the, the usual evolution into using configuration management comes, you know, there's, there's some variation of, Hey, this setting up all this stuff manually stinks. All right, mm -hmm. let's build a checklist. So I don't forget things. Yep. Let's encode that checklist in a script. All right, great. Okay. What happens now when I have to deploy a new server, I can run my script, but what happens when I have a server that's already partially configured? Does my script actually get me there? Then they start looking at configuration management. And okay. so the configuration management, we don't necessarily say how to get a machine into that certain state. We model what the state that we want it to have is. So I want the machine to have IIS. I want it to have uh, Windows auth and uh, and certificate auth, for example. And I want it to have uh, directory browsing auth. And I want you know I want all the, I, I want all these specific yep. things for my web server to, and I want to have, you know, the state service turned off and I want to have SQL server installed. You know, you have this laundry list of things that you want the system to look like. So you model all that. And then it's this, it's the chef's chef client's job to get it there. And then you can start tying in interesting stuff like, Hey, I I'm running a load balancer. So I want, when I configure myself, I want to check my chef server and say, Hey, how many web servers do I have? And what are their IP addresses so that I can set up my load balancing rules and, and how many web servers and what apps are they running? So I can properly set up all my load. Oh, balancing that's pretty rules. cool. That's pretty cool. So, so you basically have like external services that are, that are making queries to chef. Yeah. So, uh, well, and you could have uh, the chef client can actually do that as part of their configuration run. So same, mm -hmm. same type of thing in my web servers, I could say dynamically say, Hey, who is who are my SQL servers I'm supposed to talk to? Then I can build my I can build my connection strings off of that. Right, right. So everything's sort of dynamic. It, it, yes, it, it very well can be, and mm -hmm. and then all of the all of that data that's run from the configuration management run on the client gets pushed up to the server, indexed, and is available for everyone else to use. Yep, and I saw you could do versioning too, and and this whole thing, this whole idea of configuration management, I think is is such a neat idea because it it elevates you instead of like you said instead of thinking of here's how I get to this point. You're saying, here's, here's where I want to be. And then you can start thinking at the next level, here's where I, you know, I have the service that I want to run and, and, and I, I need all these various components and this is what this whole thing needs to look like. So you always want to be sort of, you know, thinking at a little bit higher level and that's what it looks like chef lets you do. Yeah, definitely. And, and then, you know, also uh, because our modeling language is just a DSL on top of Ruby, mm -hmm. it's, uh, you're you're treating your your configuration as code, and you can refactor, and you can extract, and there are testing tools, so you can write unit tests against your configuration models, 
so you can verify that what you expect to be happening is what's going to happen. And we have infrastructure, uh, we have uh, integration testing tools, so you can have you can build your recipe. That's uh, that's uh, uh, our list of instructions mm-hmm. or list of modeled states is more more accurate. Mm-hmm. They live in cookbooks, which are um, resource, which is the way you package those things. And you can test that cookbook in isolation in a in an integration testing scenario where you can say, oh, I want to test this against uh, Ubuntu uh, 12, Ubuntu 14, uh, CentOS, uh, Windows Server 2008 R2, Server 2012, Server 2012 R2. Yeah, to, very cool. Spin up all these nodes, apply the apply you know test recipes to them. That, and then run another test framework, something like Pester, which is a PowerShell testing framework, uh, server spec, which is an R spec, uh, which is a, a enhancements on top of R spec for testing server related stuff. Like is this service running or is this process running? Cause it's nice, uh, in- enhancements there, uh, server spec or small, use some other testing tool. Uh, it would, uh, the, the framework is pluggable to validate that it did what you expect it to do. So you're not trusting the tool to tell you. It did what it did. You're trusting another tool to double check your work. That makes sense. So, have you have you worked with the uh, Azure Resource Manager at all? Are you familiar with that? Uh, I've only had a brief introduction to it. I haven't. Okay. Because yeah. because I was curious how Chef compares to something like that because it's it seems really similar. Yeah, I, I believe the Resource Manager is about standing up initial nodes, and one of the one uh, and one of the key things that. Um, Chef and other configuration management tools uh, like desired state configuration are really good for is managing state over time. Okay. So when I need to, that's a good point. W- when my, when I need to roll from version one of my app to version two of my app on the same nodes, I, you know, if, if I'm in the cloud, I have, I have a couple options. And if I'm, if I have enough resources internally, I could, I have a couple options. I could spin up a complete new tier and uh, of machines and deploy into that and start from fresh. Or I could I could manage a machine that I already have and do kind of a rolling upgrade. And so it sounds like they could be complementary then, because yeah. yeah, Azure Resource Manager is like a JSON representation of your desired state, mm-hmm. and you run that. But yeah, it's it's I I want these three virtual machines, and I want this networking configuration, and and it doesn't go too far beyond that. Um, so you so this could complement Chef, I assume, right? Because yep. I could. I could, I could say, I, I need these three machines with this network. And both, by the way, I want chef agents installed on them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm going to configure those then with my chef server. You know, the chef will take it from there. Yep. And so, um, and Azure has a chef extension. Uh, mm-hmm. It's one, one of the, uh, one of the extensions you can have added to any Azure VM. So. Okay. And to compare it to another product, how does it compare to something like puppet? So we're, we're very similar products. Um, they are, we're both in the in the configuration management space. Uh, we're both through infrastructure as code. Uh, some of the some of the technical differences uh, are in kind of how uh, how configurations get applied and are how uh, and how they're modeled. So our DSL is a very thin layer on top of Ruby. Mm-hmm. They have a completely custom DSL. So uh, you can only do in their DSL what's been defined there or what you write in Ruby as plugins to their DSL, uh, where it's a little more open in, in the chef ecosystem. Um, there are pluses and minuses to both, both approaches. It's harder to shoot your foot, your, shoot yourself in the foot in kind of, uh, kind of core in, in core puppet, but it's, 
a little easier to extend and a little more natural to extend in Chef because it's all following, it's all just Ruby. Um, it, very similar, like PowerShell DSC, when you write configurations in, in, in desired state configuration, that's a, that's a DSL on top of PowerShell. So you can, you have all of the uh, programming capabilities that you have in PowerShell available in your, uh, available in your configuration script that helps you generate what the end state of your server is supposed to look like. Um, the other big technical difference between Chef and Puppet is where the uh, resource collection or that, that uh, collection of end states that you, you've assembled, where, uh, where that happens in Puppet that happens on their server. So, um, when a node checks in, it sends its current state up to the server. The server figures out what policy needs to apply to it, builds that all out there, and sends it sends down what that node should apply. In Chef, Chef node sends its current state up to the up to the server. The server sends back a run list saying, "Hey, here's the things you should apply." And then the Chef client grabs whatever cookbooks it needs from the Chef server. And it does the processing on the client as far as building out what actually needs to apply, it, it, uh, what from those recipes actually needs to apply. So all the logic happens, uh, or a lot of that logic happens on the client. That makes the Chef server extremely scalable. Uh, we see like up to 10,000 nodes per Chef server kind of a thing. It's, oh, nice. Uh, where uh, the Puppet server, I don't, I don't have any hard numbers, but- A little bit harder to scale? Yeah. Because well, because it's much more processor intensive on the. On the I gotcha. Uh, okay, yeah, it's very cool. I, this stuff I think is for for me. Like I wasn't aware of this whole ecosystem until until I started playing around with Azure, and you know it starts to make a whole lot more sense whenever you can, uh, you know, basically use a script to start creating machines, which is which is very cool. So I think this is a you know these tools are are very useful to have in your tool belt if you're doing anything with virtualization or the cloud and. And then it can also work on obviously on your physical infrastructure as well. But this was seems like this was really born out of these virtual environments. Um, no, actually, uh, these tools that they share kind of common ancestry. They go back a lot further. Yeah, so they they go back uh, about twenty five years. Um, oh wow! Yeah, so the, one of the first tools in this space it was uh, config uh, the CF engine, uh, okay. and that's been around for for about twenty five years or so, and Puppet kind of came out of that ancestry and uh, dealt with what it thought was problems in CF engine and chef came out of the puppet community and dealing with problems it felt were in chef or in puppet that weren't going to be fixed. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and just kind of uh, a little difference in viewpoints of how the workflow actually happens. So it's so like things like in chef uh, in your recipe, the order in which you declare things is the order in which they happen in puppet and design and in desired state configuration. That's not the, that's not how that that's, order is not guaranteed. You have to uh, apply dependencies. Okay. Where oh, I gotcha. When you Makes sense. Them. Yeah. So, okay. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to mention about chef or DevOps? Um, you know, if you, if you're interested in chef and you want to kind of play around, we have a great learn chef site where we'll spin up a VM for you to target. And there's some little walkthroughs and that kind of get you going from zero to I made, I made a server do something useful. Um, and so that's a lot of fun to play around with. Um, okay. Well, I'll include a link to that in the show notes. And yeah, other than that, um, you know, I'm out in the community. If you have questions, I'm always happy to talk about, you know, DevOps, config management, PowerShell, any of that fun stuff. So 
Okay. Yeah, this is really cool stuff. Very cool. I'm going to have to play around with that a little bit more. I know I'd, at one point I had set up a, a chef server. I think I set it up in Azure and I just didn't have a lot of time to play around with it. But this is definitely something that anybody who has to set up, you know, more than than a trivial system should, uh, I think, should go out there and learn. Oh, uh, one, other, one other thing is. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, chef does a lot of good stuff on the Windows platform. We actually mm-hmm. integrate very tightly with desired state configuration. Um, and desire, we can natively use desired state configuration and chef config resources. So if you like DSC, mm-hmm. chef gives you the helps fill in the rest of that story. Um, but we also integrate with other Microsoft products like other than Azure even. Uh, so visual, uh, the visual studio, uh, uh, release management product. Mm-hmm. One of the supported deployment methods is via chef. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, I'm, I'm actually going to be going to Redmond next week uh, to uh, help with the demo uh, for uh, the release management product on how to uh, on how to deploy with Chef for out of release management. Cool. I'm actually going to be in Redmond next week as well. So we should talk after the show. <laughs> <laughs> OK, well, thank you, uh, Carl. What is the app of the week? Uh, this one is one for developers and designers out there who have Windows phones. It's an app called Slash Color. And there's there's a bunch of little things about it that just involve color. So um, it has a color picker. So, of course, you can just, you know, use a, a very standard color picker thing to get a value. It's complementary uh, color. It's analogous colors. You know, it kind of helps you pick out a palette. If you have a photo, it's got a little eyedropper mode where you can kind of get all those colors as well, but kind of drag your finger around on the picture and, you know, just just get that color you want out of a picture. And along with that, there's another very similar feature with that, too. Like you can live point it at, you know, something you just say you're you're thinking about your brand or whatever. And you see a color out there. You can point your phone at it and it'll live tell you whatever colors in the little box that you select. Um, You can use it to build palettes. So if you you, like for us, we have red, white and blue. I mean, you can save those uh, different palettes that you have that you're going to use on your your websites or whatever. And it even has a mode that'll like go out to a website that you give it and it'll tell you all that information about it. It'll suck the color information out and tell you what their, their palette is, you know, what those hues are and all that. And of course it does a bunch of other things like it'll switch between hex and RGB and all that stuff. So, um, it's a dollar 99 with the free trial. Um, check it out. Cool. cool. Okay. So we have Steven, we have a game that we plan here that you may not be familiar with. It's really <coughs> easy. All I need you to do is pick a number between one and four, three, three. Okay. And you got to answer this question. Would you rather be caught picking your nose on the big screen at a huge stadium or in front of all your friends in your classroom? Uh, uh, <laughs> I would have to I, this. Is, this is for like school age yeah. kids. So I know that the class, so, so let's, let's replace a uh, classroom with uh, at work. At work. Uh, let's go with at work. My, my, my coworkers are pretty, uh, <laughs> are, are pretty lackadaisical about that. So that's, uh, I'll pick, I'll pick work. Okay, cool. <laughs> Carl, I'll pick four, pick four. Okay. Would you rather eat three raw clams covered in grape jelly or eat a cup of strawberry yogurt and tuna fish mixed together? Oh, uh, I'm guessing that, uh, the, the oysters and grape jelly is going to be a better combination than uh, seafood and dairy. Yeah. So I'll have to go with that one. Okay. <laughs> Sounds good. No, it doesn't. Those were, those were, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, I think I'd pick the other one, actually. I was thinking about the, uh, uh, the, uh, yogurt and tuna fish i think i think i could stomach that <laughs> oh I, I, yeah i would totally go the other route i would not the 
uh, yogurt and fish thing. Oof, no, thanks. Uh. <laughs> okay. Moving on. Okay. So where can people find you, Steven? Uh, we, we're going to have a whole bunch of links in the show notes. Carl's been putting them together here, but uh, where do you suggest people go if they want to learn more about you and about DevOps and chef? Uh, well, my blog is, uh, Steven Morowski.com. Um, uh, mm-hmm. I'm on Twitter at, at Steven Morowski mm-hmm. and, uh, you can find most everything from those, from those places. Uh, I, I'm an IRC in the, in, on Freenode and pound chef, uh, pound PowerShell. Uh, let's see if you're out and about, I will be at the PowerShell summit. Um, that's going to be in Charlotte coming up in April. Uh, okay. I will be at Ignite um, trying to, at Chicago trying to, first week of May. Yeah. Um, I'm actually doing a Chef Fundamentals training in Seattle in February, um, and uh, with, that's targeted at Windows. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm, I'm I'm out and about and around, and uh, the the blog's probably the best way to reach me or or Twitter. The, the, okay. Those are the two common ones. Okay, perfect. And Carl, what about you? Uh, you can find me at WPDevGuy.com or on Twitter at Carl Schweitzer. And then you can find me at YTechie.com or on Twitter at Twitter.com slash YTechie. And if you go out to my blog at YTechie.com, uh, the latest post out there as of the time of this recording uh, is a post that I made uh, a long time ago. We Actually, we've had a couple people ask us now. They've wanted details on how we make the MS Dev Show podcast. I have revealed everything, absolutely everything that I could possibly think of in my head. So it talks about all the software we use. Um, I even have a little video out there that shows kind of a, a, a quick view of the, the editing process, although there's not a whole lot I do in Audacity these days. But it shows how we get good sound, uh, how we work with the guests, all that kind of stuff. So uh, go out there at whitetechie.com and check that out. And uh, Stephen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. We really appreciate it. It's very good stuff. Oh, my pleasure. I, I love talking about this stuff. And uh, you guys are a lot of fun to talk to. So thanks for having me. Be sure to subscribe by searching for MS Dev Show in your favorite podcasting app. Leave us a review at iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast aggregator of choice. Visit us at msdevshow.com where you can leave comments, check out our links, show notes, and more. Visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash msdevshow. You can send us your comments and feedback directly to feedback at msdevshow.com. This is a closed-loop farm, and that was horse. Closed loop, meaning that everything from the pigs to the poo are working together towards the 100% self-sufficiency of the farm. Everything on the farm has different roles, but the collective goal is the same. I don't like horse so I'm not a farmer. I'm a software engineer. In our world, the animals have forgotten how to work together towards the common goal. What we need are happy customers. We have a way of doing this. It's called DevOps. Does DevOps work? It works like the farmer on the business end of a spork. It's kind of cute. I think I could sell it on Etsy. Will DevOps make your customers happy? No. It will delight them. Does a farmer milk a chicken? Or try to get an egg from a cow? I don't know. But in DevOps, we celebrate each individual's contributions.
The output from one part of the system feeds the next part of the system, which helps the next part of the system thrive. This poo fertilizes the hay that the cows eat. Henry, you eat poo? It's gross. What happens? Does DevOps mean there won't be any bugs in your system? Of course not, but you'll be better equipped to deal with those bugs. <laughs> DevOps means you trust and empathize with your teammates, but you cannot DevOps alone. In DevOps, you are working together with your community, stirring up the light. DevOps requires that you share your data with your team. What do you think of that data, Henry? Henry? Should you tear down the silos in your organization? No. You should blow those suckers up. Stop waiting for someone else to transform your business. Let's go change the world together. <laughs>